Welcome to the Classic Film Club with Richard Kuypers. Hello and welcome to the Classic Film Club. Richard Kuypers here with you. I'm a film critic for the international trade paper Variety, film festival programmer and documentary producer. I've loved movies ever since my mother took me to see Born Free at the Malvern Dendy in Melbourne about oh, a million years ago. And I'm especially interested in films that have attained classic status and looking at how well they play in 2020 and 2021. We're almost there. Has time treated them well? Have some of these classic movies lost their magic over the years? Have some aged really well? Do they play better now than they did in the day? And how have their messages and meanings been affected by the march of time? Digging into the vaults of cinematic treasures is a fascinating experience, to say the very least. It's like pulling out records you may have loved in your younger days, but you haven't played for a long time. If they still sound great, great. If not, it can be sobering and make you reflect on things a little bit as you realise that the music is still the same, but how you hear it has changed. I'm doing just that right here, re-watching famous and highly acclaimed movies and casting a critical eye on their merits and shortcomings in the cultural, social and political times in which we live. That's the main focus of the Classic Film Club, but we're also here to celebrate films that may not be famous titles that most people recognise, but are lesser-known gems that might have followings among film buffs and film critics, but they deserve to be more widely known and seen. I also love a guilty pleasure, so stay tuned as well for our Trash and Treasure segment when I pull out diamonds from the dustbin and tell you why they're essential viewing. But first, let's tackle one of the most famous, awarded and profitable films of all time, which lately has become one of the most problematic films of all time. Gone with the Wind, the adaptation of Margaret Mitchell's 1936 bestseller about the on-again, off-again romance of Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler in the southern state of Georgia before, during and after the American Civil War. Mitchell's book ranks second, only behind the Bible, as America's most read book. And the film, directed by Victor Fleming and starring Vivian Lee and Clark Gable, is one of the most viewed American films of all time. It's especially good to be looking at it again after everything that's happened socially and politically in recent times, and particularly in light of the roles played by Georgia and its capital city Atlanta in the recent US election. On the 10th of June 2020, the US cable service HBO pulled Gone with the Wind from its schedule. Amid the growing momentum of Black Lives Matter and in the immediate wake of George Floyd's death, many TV shows were also withdrawn from streaming and pay TV services around the world. You might remember an episode of Faulty Towers and the Little Britain series coming under fire. Netflix in Australia and New Zealand removed four shows created by and starring Australian comedian Chris Lilly, Jonah from Tonga, Angry Boys, Summer Heights High and We Can Be Heroes. When Gone with the Wind was reinstated uncut by HBO two weeks after being removed, it included a four-minute introduction regarding racial stereotypes and the film's historical context. These discussions are valuable and important, and I was pleased to see Foxtel Australia add the following text information when I watched it recently. 
In full, it said, Gone with the Wind is a product of its time and depicts some of the ethnic and racial prejudices that, unfortunately, remain commonplace in sections of society. We present this film in its original form. Scenes which depict racism are not endorsed by Foxtel. No one should endorse racism, let alone practice it. But what does that mean when we approach Gone with the Wind? Not to mention many other films made during less enlightened times. If you drew up a list of every Hollywood movie that endorsed racism or demeaned and belittled non-white characters, you'd end up with thousands and thousands of titles. So, should we even watch Gone with the Wind? And if we do, how does it play 80 years later? There's no way Gone with the Wind could be made today, but does that mean it should be dismissed from the ranks of Hollywood's great achievements? Well, yes and no. There are good arguments on both sides of this cinematic equation, and I found watching Gone with the Wind in 2020 to be a very contradictory experience. In this meeting of the Classic Film Club, I'll examine those complex impressions, but first, let's just get to the basic facts of the matter. A Selznick International production, in association with MGM, Gone with the Wind was released in Hollywood's golden year, 1939. There'd never been a year like it before, and there probably never will be again. The Wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, Dark Victory, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Ninochka, Of Mice and Men, Love Affair, Stagecoach. I mention all these films because in 1939, they were also nominated, alongside Gone with the Wind, in the Oscar category of Outstanding Production. This category eventually became the Best Picture Award in 1962. Against this incredible opposition, Gone with the Wind won 10 Oscars, eight in competitive sections, including Outstanding Production, and two honorary awards. In the US alone, it was re-released in 1942, 1947, 1954, 1967, 1974, 1989, and 1998. As recently as last year, it was re-released in cinemas in Taiwan. For around 50 years, there wasn't a single day when Gone with the Wind wasn't playing in a cinema somewhere on Earth, including the Barclays Cinema in Sydney, where I saw it in the school holidays in around about 1979, I think. On the Internet Movie Database, it has a staggering 287,000 votes, 28% of which rate it 10 out of 10. And as of this recording date, it comes in at number 167 on IMDb's top film ranking. I'm sure that would have been a bit higher a few years ago, but still, number 167 out of the countless hundreds of thousands of films that have ever been made says something. So, we can say that Gone with the Wind has longevity, but what about its durability in a social climate that's so different from when it played publicly for the first time at Lowe's Grand Theatre in Atlanta, Georgia, on December the 15th, 1939? Here's a really good example of just how different that social climate was in America at the time. When Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American to win an Oscar for her supporting role as Scarlett's loyal maid, Mammy, she was forced to sit at a table at the back of the room during the awards ceremony at the Ambassador Hotel in LA. And that was after producer David O. Selznick pulled a big favour to allow McDaniel into the room in the first place. 
Even before the film went into production, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, became actively involved, attempting to keep the novel's most offensive depictions of African Americans out of the final script. While it's offensive to see slaves presented as basically happy with their lot and toiling hard without complaining about being owned by white people, as if they were just the same as livestock, many of the novel's worst excesses were modified, and the film could have been much, much worse on this front. The reason for Gone with the Wind's existence is to present a romantic, honourable, and soul-stirring vision of the South, of slavery, and the Confederate cause. A land of cavaliers and cotton fields, it says on the opening titles, that sweep across the screen in huge letters following the logo of Selznick International Pictures. A logo that looks like it could be a southern mansion from the film we're about to watch. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master, of slave. It is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. That prologue was supplied by Ben Hecht, one of an army of writers including Joe Swirling, Charles MacDonald, and even F. Scott Fitzgerald, who contributed to the screenplay without receiving any credit. The Oscar-winning script was attributed solely to Sidney Howard, whose radical past included supporting Communist Party of America candidate William Foster in the 1932 presidential election. Right from the start, as this prologue appears and before we meet Scarlett O'Hara or Rhett Butler or any of Sidney Howard's words are actually spoken, you're reminded that this film was released when segregation was mandated in the South and widely, unofficially in force in the North. This is indeed a poem to an age that may be gone, but for a large part of its target audience in 1939, and undoubtedly today, it has not been forgotten and is remembered with misty-eyed nostalgia that's blind to how those plantations prospered and how those southern families accumulated all of their wealth. That sense of gallantry and knights and their ladies is evident straight away. On the porch at Tara is the beautiful, strong-willed southern belle Scarlett O'Hara. She's talking to the Tarleton twins, Brent and Stuart. Stuart's played by George Reeves of TV fame in the 50s as Superman. The Tarleton boys are vying for Scarlett's affections, but even more exciting than romance is the prospect of going to war with those Yankees from the North. There's never any detailed explanation of why there's conflict between the South and the North, like the issue of slavery, for example. It's all very hazy, and that would have been bad for box office to make it so explicit. For the Tarletons and all the other Southern men we soon see rushing off to enlist, it's about honour self-determination and land. As Scarlett's Irish-American father Gerald tells her, why land's the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. But Scarlett isn't interested in land and war. Fiddle-dee-dee, she says, this war talk spoiling all the fun at every party this spring. On her mind is romance and hopefully marriage to Ashley Wilkes, Leslie Howard. He's the heir to nearby Twelve Oaks Plantation. Never mind that Ashley doesn't love her, and he's about to announce his engagement to his cousin, yes cousin, Melanie Hamilton, Olivia de Havilland. Scarlett will just have to tell Ashley he really does love her, and that'll be that. 
If there's a white voice of reason and conscience here, it belongs to Ashley Wilkes, certainly in the first half of the film. He seems to have a genuine affection for his slaves and says he would have freed them regardless of the war's outcome. In the stampede to join the Confederate army, it's Ashley who steps back and tells his friends that most of the misery in the world has been caused by war. That doesn't stop him from joining up, but his motives are much more personal and immediate. He just wants to preserve Twelve Oaks, the place he loves and where he wants to be buried. When Ashley returns from the war, he's clearly suffering PTSD and is suicidal. A world which is worse than death is how he describes coming home to the wreckage of Twelve Oaks. Ashley may have lost everything, but let's remember that he owed his wealth and the happiness it brought to the slave labour on his property. If we can feel sympathy at all for Ashley, who's also never owned up to his true feelings for Scarlet, largely out of the obligation he feels for Melanie, it's largely due to Leslie Howard's sensitive and heartfelt performance. Howard, who was the star of Intermezzo and The Scarlet Pimpernel and was Oscar-nominated for Pygmalion and Berkeley Square, co-starred with Olivia de Havilland in It's Love, I'm After, a very zingy 1937 comedy directed by Archie Roach, in which an engaged heiress, played by de Havilland, gets tangled up with an egotistical actor, played by Howard. It's great fun. Leslie Howard returned to the UK after Gone with the Wind to help with the war effort, and was killed on June 1st, 1943, after his commercial KLM flight from Lisbon to Bristol was shot down by German planes. Even if he doesn't realise the contradictions and hypocrisy of his position as a moneyed southerner whose noble notion of freeing his slaves would adversely affect his profit margins, Ashley is a calming and sensible presence. His earlier words of caution about war ring loudest in famous scenes of Scarlet wandering through thousands of wounded and dying Confederate soldiers on the train tracks of Atlanta, and especially when she turns away in horror when Dr. Mead, Harry Davenport, is about to perform an amputation without anaesthetic. Gone with the Wind may glorify the Confederate cause, but to its credit, it never glorifies war itself. There are no big battle scenes, and the only deaths we witness of men in uniform come during the Yankee occupation of Atlanta when the lives of Southern civilians are placed at risk. If not the conscience of the film, the heart and soul of Gone with the Wind is undeniably Ashley's wife and cousin Melanie, played so beautifully by Olivia de Havilland, whose career to this point included Captain Blood, The Charge of the Light Brigade, The Adventures of Robin Hood and Dodge City, all with Errol Flynn, and Anthony Adverse, opposite Frederick March. Almost impossibly sweet, selfless and noble, Melanie is the best friend Scarlett O'Hara could ever have, even if Melanie's husband is the man Scarlett wants for herself. It's hard to like Scarlett and warm to her throughout the entire story. She's so selfish, and today we'd be tempted to call her a stalker. But Melanie's the opposite, and dramatically she's the perfect foil for Scarlett. Melanie loves Scarlett as a sister. Melanie becomes a volunteer nurse, as does Scarlett, but she's never convincingly committed to it. Unlike everyone else in Atlanta society, Melanie's happy to talk in public with Belle Watling, owner Munson, the madam of an upscale brothel frequented by the city's rich and powerful men, hypocrisy again. 
Bell's offer to donate part of her earnings to a hospital has been rejected by so-called respectable society as an insult to the Confederate cause. That's until Melanie, who's educated and well-read, graciously and without judgment accepts Bell's much-needed funds. One of the most famous sequences in Gone with the Wind is The Burning of Atlanta. It was filmed in December 1938, very early in the production schedule before Vivian Lee had signed on, requiring the use of a stand-in for Scarlet in wide shots. Watch closely and you can see the stand-in's face turned away from camera or with a raised arm hiding her identity. Moselle Miller, who was Vivian Lee's double, was paid about $27 a day for her work. But it's not Scarlet's fate we're most concerned with in the burning of Atlanta scene as Rhett Butler drives a horse and buggy through the flames. Melanie and her newborn baby are in the carriage. Their safety and the very real risk of their deaths give the scene an emotional impact to match the awesome visual spectacle. And what a spectacle it is. This sequence takes Gone with the Wind into apocalyptic zombie movie or Mad Max Fury Road-like territory, with Rhett fighting off desperados attempting to steal their transport, while an inferno slowly engulfs the town and the lives of a mother and baby hang in the balance. It's thrilling stuff, right up there with the chariot race in Ben-Hur, as a classic action scene that still makes the grade today. Sure, computer-generated imagery can do just about anything today, but there's something about real action that's hard to beat. The first half of Gone with the Wind moves at a breakneck pace, driven by the Civil War and its impact on the main characters. For Scarlet, that means becoming married and widowed, while still obsessing over Ashley Wilkes and falling in and out of lust, there's no other way to put it, with Rhett Butler, the handsome, opportunistic profiteer, gambler, an all-round scoundrel with no allegiance to anyone or anything other than his own financial well-being. But of course, there's a heart there when it really counts. And who better to play him than the king of Hollywood himself, Clark Gable, a man with a chin, a chest and hair, at the height of his powers as a leading man, following a string of hits opposite the tragic platinum blonde bombshell Gene Harlow and an Oscar to his name for the screwball comedy classic It Happened One Night. Most of us know about the search for Scarlett O'Hara, in which just about every leading lady in Tinseltown was rumoured at one time or another to be cast in the role. Betty Davis, Paulette Goddard, even Catherine Hepburn, would you believe? But much less is known about the casting of Rhett. Gable was Selznick's first choice, but tricky contractual matters in the studio system of the times meant that leading men, including Gary Cooper and Errol Flynn, came into the frame before Gable could be secured, even though he didn't really want the part, <laughs> the part that eventually became his most famous and even earned him an Oscar nomination. Rhett Butler, talk about a man's man and a lady's man. Rhett is friends with Belle the Bordello Keeper and infuriatingly attractive to Scarlett, who loves and hates his brash, straight-talking ways. The chemistry between Vivian Lee and Clark Gable is terrific hurling insults at each other one moment and declaring their love the next. Even when they finally do marry, no spoiler alert there. Even if you haven't seen the film, you know they will. There's tension, tragedy and fabulous melodrama from the moment they say, I do. As wonderful as the Scarlet-Rett relationship is, it sustains the second half of the film, which is otherwise a little bit limp and repetitious, there's one particularly troubling aspect of involving rape inside marriage. 
There's no question about what happens one night at the magnificent mansion Rhett has built for them in Atlanta. Drunk, angry about Scarlett's ongoing love for Ashley and her refusal to have sex with her husband, Rhett marches Scarlett upstairs against her will. She's furious and resisting him strongly. He says, this is one night you're not turning me out. The next morning, Scarlett is seen smiling, beaming even with happiness. But for me, this can't exonerate the previous scene, as there's not even the slightest hint that it might be a game that Scarlett secretly enjoys or wants. That would have been too much to convey to general audiences in 1939. It's possible that Margaret Mitchell based this part of the story on her own horrific experiences while married to Red Upshaw, a violent alcoholic. It's also been suggested that Rhett Butler was an idealised version of Upshaw. In any case, it's a nasty scene of macho dominance, and it really detracts from the film. A shame, because elsewhere in the Rhett Scarlet relationship, there's so much to enjoy. I mentioned before that it's hard to like Scarlet, but she's always compelling, and that's what drama requires with an unsympathetic central character. We always want to know what's going to happen next in her colourful and extremely eventful life. The first time Scarlett and Rhett meet is at a barbecue at Twelve Oaks. Scarlett's immediately intrigued when told about the terrible reputation of this dashing man dressed in a fancy black suit. After Butler has mentally undressed her and given her the first of many highly sexual stares and smiles, Scarlett tells a friend, he looks as if he knows what I look like without my shimmy. Some of the film's best dialogue is exchanged when they're in the heat of passion or at the height of hostility. You'll never corner me, Rhett Butler, or frighten me. You've lived in dirt so long you can't understand anything else, says Scarlet. And as Rhett says, I love you because we're alike. Bad lots, both of us. Selfish and shrewd, but able to look things in the eyes as we call them by their right names. It's great stuff. It really sizzles. The running time of Gone with the Wind is 221 minutes, or somewhere between 234 and 238 minutes, if you count the overture, intermission, and exit music that audiences would have experienced on original release. Quick side note, I love overtures that accompanied so many of those big Hollywood films made from the 1920s to the 1970s. The Wizard of Oz, Ben-Hur, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that's entertainment. Films like that come to mind. When the lights were still up and the curtains were still closed, the overture music brought anticipation and a marvellous sense of occasion to going to the movies. Much better than the 20 minutes of advertising we get now. The intermission of Gone with the Wind comes after the war is over and Scarlet returns to her shattered family in the ruins of Tara, vowing to rebuild the great family home. As God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again, she says. It's actually not a bad idea to give yourself an intermission at that time as well, to think about this sprawling story and how it's been told. Visually, it's superb in three-strip Technicolor, only the 30th feature film to use that process, and it's gorgeously costumed and art-directed and set to a rousing score by the legendary Max Steiner, Oscar-nominated for this, and winner for Now Voyager, Since You Went Away, and The Informer. But what you can't ignore about Gone with the Wind, and what we need to look at more closely than ever before, is the portrayal of African-American characters. In early scenes, we watch contented slaves peacefully working the fields. There's field foreman Big Sam, Everett Brown. 
He'll remain loyal to the O'Haras even after the war, and he rescues Scarlet when her life's in danger. Pork, Oscar Polk, is a house servant. Like Big Sam, he stays with the O'Haras after emancipation. Prissy, Butterfly McQueen, another house servant. With her high-pitched voice, exaggerated speech and dim-witted nature, she's played for comic relief. Rhett calls her a simple-minded darky. None of the black characters here are treated with much dignity, but Prissy comes off the worst. She's the living embodiment of that idea that black people are intellectually inferior and stand little hope of making their way in the world on their own. They need white owners to provide the basic necessities and are better off in servitude. We do see some freed slaves in the course of the film, but mostly they're portrayed as hustlers and opportunists who've teamed up with carpetbaggers, those despised northerners who came to the south after the war to exert political and economic influence. One scene shows a carpetbagger offering a grant of 40 acres and a mule to newly freed blacks, a reference to Special Field Orders No. 15, issued by the North's General Sherman in January 1865. In truth, there was a very short window for this order, and it was never properly enacted before being rescinded completely by Abraham Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. Few freed slaves ever received 40 acres and a mule. Interesting to note here is that African-American filmmaker Spike Lee, Black Klansman Malcolm X, named his production company 40 Acres and a Mule. 40 Acres is also the name of the RKO Studios backlot that David O. Selznick leased in 1935 and used for the filming of Gone with the Wind. As you watch Atlanta burn, you're also watching sets of the original 1933 version of King Kong go up in smoke. I like digging into history such as this. It helps us understand the context of stories we watch and reminds us that movies should never be mistaken for accurate history lessons. Some come close to the truth, others treat it as an afterthought, but no drama, even 221-minute epics such as this, can tell the whole story. But let's get back to the issue at hand and look at the most important African-American character in Gone with the Wind, Mammy, played by Hattie McDaniel, whom I mentioned earlier as only being allowed to sit at a side table at the Academy Awards, even on the very night she became the first African-American to win one of those famous statuettes, Best Supporting Actress. The character name itself, Mammy, is the dominant caricature of African-American women in literature and cinema. Mammies were created to give the impression that slaves were happy and even contented to be part of the household of their owners, and therefore slavery itself was acceptable. Giving them a nurturing, mothering role is an inherent part of this. They bring up white children, they're part of the white family, and are always large-framed, older women with no overt sexual appeal that could raise questions about wrongdoing with the male head of the house. We know from history that's far from the truth, but it's very convenient in dramas such as Gone with the Wind and hundreds and hundreds of other films. And so it is here, with Mammy, whom we first meet as the sassy and straight-talking housemaid, who's been with the O'Haras for generations, and is the only character apart from Rhett Butler who ever tells Scarlett O'Hara the truth. As Scarlett prepares for the big Twelve Oaks barbecue at the beginning of the film, Mammy tells her to eat something beforehand, so she won't appear to be unladylike by eating at the gathering. That in itself tells you plenty about social norms and sexism in bygone days. 
If you don't care what folks say about this family, I does, says Mammy. You can always tell a lady by the way that she eats in front of folks, like a bird, she adds. Mammy also lays it out straight to Scarlett about Ashley Wilkes. What a gentleman says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley asking for to marry you, she says. Mammy calls it correct and true every single time. She's like the Greek chorus of the film. She's powerless to do anything because she's the property of the O'Hara family. But at the same time, she's privileged in this world because she can say things that would land other slaves in very hot water. There's no doubt Hattie McDaniel deserved her Oscar. It's a fabulous, full-blooded performance, but that's just it. It's a performance intended to make white audiences feel untroubled by the fact that Mammy and every other African-American character here has been denied basic human rights. It's a complex issue. When McDaniel attracted criticism for playing a role that perpetuated the Mammyism, she said, why should I complain about making $7,000 a week playing a maid? If I didn't, I'd be making $7 a week actually being one. Which reminds me, if you want to see a very, very fine film about black American domestic maids, I highly recommend The Help, made in 2011 and based on Catherine Stockett's 2009 novel, which was set in 1960s Mississippi. For me, the portrayal of Mammy is representative of the entire film. So much to admire and enjoy if you don't think too deeply. But once you start to look more closely and think about it, it becomes deeply troublesome. In pure filmmaking terms, Gone with the Wind is a majestic achievement. David O. Selznick's biographer, David Thompson, noted that Selznick considered the audience response to a public sneak preview on September the 9th, 1939, when it ran for four and a half hours, to be the greatest moment of his life. The greatest victory and redemption of all his failings, is how Thompson put it. 300,000 people turned out in Atlanta for the December premiere as part of a three-day program of festivities with Confederate flags flying everywhere. Again, that would not and could not happen today. It's a film that does sag a bit towards the end, but it's never less than dramatically compelling and visually magnificent. Even the shots of real pastures and real fields look fake. They're so green and so red. And a special note here about the stunning production design. William Cameron Menzies received a special Oscar for Outstanding Achievement in the Use of Colour for the Enhancement of Dramatic Mood. Menzies, who later directed films including Invaders from Mars in 1953, also invented the job title Production Designer. It all started there with him. One thing Menzies and his staff and the costume designers didn't have to recreate was anything related to the Ku Klux Klan, an element of the novel omitted from the film. And luckily too, I think, how would we look at this film today if that were the case? In D.W. Griffith's landmark silent epic, The Birth of a Nation, we see the Ku Klux Klan portrayed as an heroic movement keeping traditions and white supremacy alive. The Birth of a Nation was the first feature film ever screened at the White House for President Woodrow Wilson. When it went into general release, cinema ushers were dressed in Ku Klux Klan robes at premiere screenings. The Birth of a Nation is an amazing feat of filmmaking, but its reputation is severely and justifiably tarnished by its appalling and overt racism. In Gone with the Wind, we're aware of Southern men attending a political meeting, 
but we don't see this meeting, nor is the group named, but it's most certainly the Ku Klux Klan. Gone with the Wind is without doubt a racist film, but it's an audience-friendly kind of racism. The N-word is never uttered. Apart from a couple of moments like Rhett Butler's simple-minded darky comment, there's no speech-making or foot-stomping about slavery or white supremacy. It's not acceptable now, but in 1939, Gone with the Wind presented a view of the Civil War era South that was consistent with general community attitudes at the time. It had to be. This film cost a staggering $3.85 million to make, and it needed to be accepted and embraced by the widest possible audience in order to become profitable, which it did. It made $189 million domestically and $200 million internationally on first release alone. With adjustments for inflation, that's about $1.8 billion, making it still the highest grossing film of all time. Watching Gone with the Wind is a very mixed motion picture experience. As a spectacle and as entertainment, it's four and a half out of five for me. But on so many important fronts, it hasn't stood the test of time well at all. It represents and promotes views that for me are unacceptable, and I simply couldn't put those to one side and just go with the flow of Vivian Lee and Clark Gable's dynamite central performances and everything else the film has going for it. While I don't regard it as a classic, a fallen classic maybe, I still highly recommend watching Gone with the Wind at least once because of its legendary stature and its undeniable importance in the history of cinema. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is the Classic Film Club with Richard Kuypers. I'd like to stick with the general theme of this Classic Film Club meeting by looking into Australian movie history and the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander characters. For me, the most exciting development in Australian cinema over the past two or even three decades has been the emergence of Indigenous filmmakers telling their own stories. Samson and Delilah and Sweet Country by Warwick Thornton, Radiance, Brand New Day by Rachel Perkins, Beneath Clouds and Mystery Road by Ivan Sen, Wayne Blair's The Sapphires and Top End Wedding, to name just a few, there are so many more. But long before the long overdue emergence of Indigenous filmmakers, Australian cinema relied on Anglo filmmakers to tell stories involving Indigenous characters. Sometimes, shamefully, white actors in blackface played Aboriginal characters, such as Ed Devereaux from the famous Skippy TV series, playing black tracker Jubal in the 1968 film Journey Out of Darkness. The same film also featured Malaysian-born singer Kamal playing an Indigenous character. Let's go back 13 years before that to 1955, and an Australian feature film that's the first of its kind on several different fronts. Made by the pioneering team of Charles and Elsa Chevelle, Jeddah was the first Australian film in colour. It's also the first Australian film selected for competition at Cannes, and the first to feature Indigenous actors in leading roles. The story is set in Mongala, a remote cattle station in Central Australia run by Doug McCann, George Simpson Little, and his wife Sarah, Betty Sutter. After losing her own child, Sarah adopts Jeddah, an Indigenous baby whose mother died in childbirth. Reflecting a common view in 1950s Australia, Sarah decides to raise Jeddah as if she were white, denying her access to her Aboriginal roots in the belief she'll have a better chance in life. Doug is sceptical, 
believing that blacks and whites are too different for this to work, and that Jeddah should be allowed to go on walkabout and learn about her people. They don't tame, he says, to which Sarah replies, it's my duty to try. Narrating the story is Joe, an Afghani Aboriginal orphan raised by the McCanns. When the story fast forwards to Jeddah as a young woman, Joe falls in love with her and wants to marry her. But Jeddah, played by Rosalie Kunoth Monks, remains frustrated and confused about not knowing her language or culture. Although flattered by Joe's attention and attracted to him, Jeddah is drawn much more strongly towards station worker Marbuck, Robert Tudawali. This handsome, mysterious man whisks Jeddah away in the hope he can marry her. She's willing at times and resists him at others, but Marbuck's desire for Jeddah has broken a tribal taboo, leaving them as outcasts while they're also being pursued by Joe and Northern Territory police officers. Like Gone with the Wind, Jeddah is very much a product of its time. From 1909 to 1970, the Aboriginal Protection Act operated in Australia. This granted authorities permission to take mixed-race Indigenous children away from their mothers and have them raised in mostly church-run facilities and trained to become maids and other domestic workers. These children are known as the Stolen Generations, and the national trauma resulting from this policy remains ongoing and very present in Australian society today. It's one of the most shameful chapters in Australian history. As appalling as the Aboriginal Protection Act was, many otherwise decent, ordinary Australians sincerely believed it was for the best. We see this in Sarah as she goes about her task, with genuine love and care, to be sure, but with such a misguided and eventually catastrophic adherence to the belief that her race and culture are superior. On the other side of the equation is her husband, Joe, who stops short of saying anything truly enlightened, but does at least recognise Indigenous people and their culture as being unique and valid, and never uses any of the derogatory terms that would have been accepted by most viewers in 1955. At the heart of the film, and what makes it so well worth watching today, are the central performances of 16-year-old Rosalie Kunoth Monks and 26-year-old Robert Tudawali, neither of whom had acted before. Very few words are spoken between them. Most are in Marbuck's language that Jeddah does not understand, and some are in English. But the danger, apprehension, and passion of their relationship is powerfully conveyed, so powerfully that words really aren't necessary. Rosalie Kunoth Monks, an Arendt and Mathieu woman, was born on Utopia Cattle Station and was billed here as Nala Kunoth. She later became a nun before working in politics and human rights and was named NIDOC, National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee, Person of the Year in 2015. She is an enormously respected Indigenous Australian woman. A Tiwi man from Melville Island, Robert Tudawali appeared in a few other productions and was elected Vice President of the Northern Territory Council for Aboriginal Rights in 1966. His troubled life came to a premature end in 1967, but his remarkable performance as Marbuck is firmly etched in Australian cinema history. Jeddah was filmed on locations that had never been seen before in colour in a feature film. Coolabar Cattle Station, Stanley Chasm and Ormiston Gorge among them, and they're superbly photographed by DOP Carl Kaiser. As we so often say about Australian films set in the outback, 
the landscape comes alive and seems like a living, breathing character. Interiors and a small number of exterior scenes were filmed at Avondale Studios in the Sydney suburb of Chirilla. Some of the matching between location and studio is noticeably substandard, with painted backdrops all too obvious. Additionally, Jeddah is hampered by the casting of white actor Paul Raynal with dark makeup playing Joe. It's not the really awful black and white minstrel type makeup, but blackface is still blackface any way you look at it. Yet for all its flaws, which includes some clumsy dialogue and variable supporting performances, there is something special about Jeddah, because it is at least trying to say something, and it's sympathetic to the plight of its central character. Yes, it fumbles around a bit and bends things to not confront mid-1950s audiences too much, such as never mentioning the forced removal of Indigenous children from their mothers, but Jeddah does have its heart in the right place. It's sincere, and for that it earns my respect and recommendation. Jeddah was Charles Chevelle's final film. Chevelle also made 40,000 Horsemen and The Rats of Tobruk, both starring legendary Aussie actor Chips Rafferty. Jeddah was a sizeable hit in Australia when it opened in May 1955, and was released in the UK and the USA in 1956, where it was retitled Jeddah the Uncivilised. Here's an excerpt from the review by Variety, the publication I write for, published on June 15, 1956. Australians generally have little sentiment for their native Negro people, their words, not mine, and this. Although the Australian Aborigine is generally unlovely, Robert Tutawali is a dark native male of fine physique and a natural actor. That review was written by an unnamed variety critic in Sydney, and shows, like the film, what was acceptable in print and by community standards of the time, and I'm really pleased that those kinds of things would be completely unacceptable now. Jeddah is available to buy on DVD, but isn't that easy to find on streaming services. The best way to track it down is through the Beamer Film streaming service that operates via council libraries. It's actually a great free service, and I do highly recommend you look it up on your local council website, or by googling Beamer Film. B-E-A-M-A, film. This is not a cash for comments moment, I assure you. I actually only just discovered Beamer Film for myself when I wanted to watch Jeddah again. It's a great way to connect with your local library, and the selection of films for free is excellent once you've registered with the library. Finally, to the traditional trash and treasure segment of the Classic Film Club. I'm staying on topic here with a few recommendations from the wonderful world of blaxploitation cinema. Blaxploitation was the tidal wave of predominantly action and crime stories that sprang up in America in the early 1970s. Unlike race cinema movies that were produced exclusively for black audiences from the silent era to the early 1950s and are largely lost and forgotten now, Blaxploitation was made for general audiences by both indie companies and major film studios. While most were made by white directors, many were also made by African-American filmmakers, such as Gordon Parks, Shaft, 1971, with its Oscar-winning theme by Isaac Hayes. Then there was Ossie Davis, Cotton Comes to Harlem. And Ivan Dixon, he played Kinch in the Hogan's Heroes TV series, and went on to direct films like Trouble Man and the little scene classic The Spook Who Sat By The Door. That is an incredible film. If you can find it, watch it. It's an amazing film from 1973. Blaxploitation was just as the title suggests. 
exploitation films about the gritty and occasionally glamorous side of African-American life, with car chases, shootouts, explosions, and fisticuffs right to the fore. We could talk forever about the dozens of blaxploitation gems out there, but right now I just want to highlight a few films starring my favourite female blaxploitation star, Pam Greer. No less a person than Quentin Tarantino calls Greer the first female action star, and I couldn't agree more. Pam Greer started work in 1967, answering the telephones at the legendary B-movie company American International Pictures. In 1971, director Jack Hill cast Greer in a support role in The Big Dollhouse, a women in prison picture in which Pam plays a lesbian inmate who busts out of a jungle hellhole with fellow prisoners and takes revenge on those who done them wrong. It's great stuff. So too is Coffee from 1973, starring Pam as Flower Child Coffin. What a fantastic name. Flower Child Coffin, a.k.a. Coffee. She's a nurse who's out to settle the score with the low-life drug pushers responsible for her sister's heroin addiction. Coffee was a huge hit and established Greer as Blaxploitation's biggest star, male or female. If you want to know where tough, intelligent, resilient screen heroines come from, Coffee is a very good place to start. Every Pam Greer film is worth watching, and the other one I'd like to highlight right now is Friday Foster from 1975, with Pam playing a photographer for a high-end fashion magazine who gets drawn into a plot to assassinate black political and cultural leaders. It was based on a comic strip in the Chicago Tribune, the first ever comic with a black female protagonist, and it has a great supporting cast, including Yafet Cotto of Alien fame, Carl Weathers, who played Apollo Creed in four of the Rocky movies, and the great singer, activist, and author, Eartha Kitt. Friday Foster was Pam's final blaxploitation film, and was released toward the end of the first wave of blaxploitation. It's never actually gone away, it's just changed and evolved over the years, in films such as Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, starring, of course, Golden Globe nominee Pam Greer. Though criticised in some quarters, including black rights organisations, for promoting stereotypes and emphasising sex, violence and crime, blaxploitation films at their best feature strong, determined African-American characters who stand up for themselves and apologise to no one. I highly recommend starting your blaxploitation explorations with Pam Greer and seeing where the road takes you from there. And I look forward to visiting more fascinating and stimulating destinations at the next meeting of the Classic Film Club. I'm Richard Kuypers. Thank you very much for listening. You can't go now. Work here is done. I love a happy ending. You've been listening to the Classic Film Club with Richard Kuypers. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.